Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. The key commandment that Jesus gives us is to love one another. And that's why Lois has come. (laughs) It's to receive that love. I was going to say something like speaking of the devil, but I thought that wouldn't be a kind thing to say. (laughs) The key command is to love one another, even our enemies. And the question I'm raising here, can you love someone and kill them? Most all Protestants answer yes in regard to killing in a just war. But I want to argue that this is a reversal of the teaching of Jesus. And this is my title, Beating the Cross into a Sword. Jesus' teaching has been separated from his modeling of that teaching. And notice in the verse we're about to read, 12 to 15, that he presumes that he himself, his life, is the definition of love. This is my commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this that a person will lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you slaves for the slave does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, because all the things that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. The problem we face is that this command to love has been removed from Jesus as the model for love. And the word has become, the word love has become equivocal. It can mean about anything. It will be taught that love of our enemies can be killing them in war. Or we can love heretics. You know, this is during, in the Inquisition, the period in which they were torturing people to death. Well, we love their soul, but we'll have to kill their body. So I want to explain how the love of Christ has been changed up to its opposite. But then I will conclude by showing that we need to return to Christ as the model. And that's the phrase I want you to think of here. That he is our model. We need to bring the life of Christ together with the teaching of Christ. Because they've been separated. A literal marker of the distance between the words of Jesus... And his life is to be found on war monuments, bearing the words from this verse. No one has greater love than this to lay down one's life for his friends. Usually in the King James Version, it was a very popular verse for World War I monuments. The bloodiest and most senseless war of the century fought primarily between Christian nations. The implication is that the dead soldier fulfilled Jesus' words. 
that they too sacrificed their life for their friends in the way of Jesus. In fact, we can take the dead soldier and attribute all the work of Christ to him. And that's often done. Well, didn't he take up a cross and sacrifice himself? Didn't he lay down his life in love so that we might have freedom? We remember him. You know, we memorialize his death. Now in Japan at Yasukuni Shrine, the war dead along with the war criminals are literally venerated or worshipped. I think most Americans would feel uncomfortable worshipping the dead. But in songs like the Battle Hymn of the Republic, every element of war is more or less baptized, Christianized. It's made the whole movement of war holy. I'm thinking, you know, think here of the words, the Lord's wrath and truth march on. How? Through the power of the sword. The whole song is about the sword. And it bears his glory. It pictures the fires of an encampment that they're an altar built to ensure his fiery gospel will be writ in burnished rows of steel, swords. And this is equated with the work of Christ on the cross, crushing the serpent with his heel. That is, the cross has become a sword in the song. And this violence is equated with the glory of God. Glory, glory, hallelujah. What do we glorify? War. Throughout the marching of the troops is directly identified with God marching on. Remember the refrain, Christ died to make men holy. And so this should inspire the troops to die to make men free. Equating the two sorts of deaths. And finally, the honor of killing and war is deified. He, you know, meaning God, is honor to the brave. And so the soldier going out to kill, to lay down someone's life, someone else's life, not his own, so he can return home, is equated with Jesus laying down his life. Freedom, freedom requiring the slaughter of the enemy is equated with the freedom of Christ he gives us from sin and death and violence. And the memorializing or remembrance, you know, as with the Lord's Supper, is the equivalent really of an act of worship. But now there is a memorializing of killing and death. And where Jesus' death was aimed at defeating death, this remembrance makes death itself the means to freedom. And so in the battle hymn of the Republic, war is equated with God. His truth, his gospel, his wrath are let loose on the enemy and his mercy shown to the victor. Well, that's God's grace. So that it takes each element of war and Christianizes it. And my point here is it's not just this song, it's not a slippage of words, but the religion, Christianity, I'm afraid is rendered equivocal. In the U.S. Air Force Academy Chapel in 
Colorado. You can go into the chapel and there is a, what appears to be a cross on the wall. But when you get up close, you realize, oh, it's a sword in the shape of a cross. Literally, the cross is rendered into a sword in the modern understanding of Christianity. Violence is made redemptive, precisely what the gospel is not. And this is meant that love is confused with hate. And loving peace is confused with war-making violence. And so the question is, what happened to bring about this undoing and reversal of the Christian faith? Last week I traced a little bit the Constantinian shift. When Constantine became a Christian, Emperor Constantine. But actually that's not explanation enough. As there is no period up to the Protestant Reformation, other than the Crusades maybe, in which this direct equivalence between war and Christianity is so firmly drawn out. So even with the rise of Constantine and the development of just war, you know, the idea that Christians should be or could be soldiers in the theory of killing and war, for the period leading up to the Reformation, that still called for penance you still had a level of guilt. And it was presumed that maybe killing in war was less than murder, than outright murder, but you still had to go confess. And clergy were banned from killing in war or bearing the sword. And even the prince, if he declared a war, he was required subsequent to the fighting to do penance. He'd have to go and confess. And so killing was always considered evil, even in a just war. And in turn, nonviolence was the standard, equated with Christian love. And just war was permitted, but the prince and his soldiers, you know, usually the soldiers were mercenaries. They were paid soldiers who would fight on a limited scale. Well, they had to do penance. They felt a guilt and of course they felt this with the knights and mercenaries they when they would go to church part of the portico of the church would show devils dragging people into hell and the people they were dragging into hell were soldiers people who would kill and they would hear this in sermons so they knew they were living in perpetual sin and so during the middle ages one of the strange phenomena is that the monasteries were filled up with knights who were living a life of monastic penance because of their guilt. And so it was recognized that fighting in wars, that was a kind of exception. It certainly was not the rule. But just as many people, monastics, priests, penitents, the church really was committed to a life of nonviolence. And these historical streams that we're describing actually made up in numbers of people, probably more, that belong to this understanding. Some of this is we have throughout the history of the church, groups who practiced pacifism, besides the monastics. And of course the Jews, this is the interesting thing, that subsequent to Christ, Judaism is really pacifism for the most part. 
All of them carried on despite Constantine. And so you renounce violence, you renounce carrying the sword, and that's part of love. That's what it means to love. You don't kill people. Step one. And Jesus, he is our model for showing love even unto death, even taking up the cross, even bearing the cross of his enemies. And so my point here is it's only with the Protestant Reformation and its notion of works righteousness that nonviolence was no longer considered normative for love. The Reformation said that, you know, all that penitential stuff, the monastic stuff, well, we've got to get rid of that because that pertains to works righteousness. And you don't do anything to be saved, you just believe. And what they meant by believe, faith, you don't do nothing. Special acts which emphasize the normative nature of Christian love, nonviolence, penance, confession, pilgrimage, or becoming a monk or a priest. For a Protestant, that was considered counterproductive to the message of justification by faith. But the problem is that in getting rid of these visible signs that indicated at least the possibility of a peaceable, fuller gospel, Protestantism rid itself of any vestige of nonviolence. Now, pastorally, you know, the reformers said, well, people should not be occupied, preoccupied with not doing wrong because people can never completely avoid doing wrong. If we put this in love language, this sounds ridiculous. It's like saying you cannot love perfectly, so you might as well give up trying. Love and morality were separated. And so the main thing in Protestantism, oh, you have to have a robust conscience so that we can live with the limits of the human condition and not be depressed. You know, that was Luther's problem. He was depressed. He was beating himself quite literally as a monk. And when he became a Protestant or protested, he said, well, we get rid of all that. So some of this, well, yeah, you, you had the wrong idea about works. But he thought morality is for a guidance, to give us a good conscience. But he did not think it was a guide to love. And so what I'm describing, what had been universal, the priests, monks, monasteries, churches, they were always holy places. You never pillage a church, you don't pillage a library, and even on Good Friday, all the soldiers would set their swords down because you don't fight on a Good Friday. And so there were holy days, there were holy times. But with the Reformation, there is no sense of a real world enactment of the way of Jesus or even of a remnant of symbolism of an alternative peaceable order. And so you can't do anything to be saved. And so the emphasis where you had holy times and holy places in Catholicism, well, that's traded for faith alone. And so all are priests, you know, the priesthood of all believers and every profession is divinely ordained as a sphere unto itself so that even the remaining small islands of nonviolence preserved in Catholicism, they vanished. Now I'm telling only half the story here. I'm telling about the Protestant Reformation, and we all know that 
with the Protestant Reformation occurs the rise of the Anabaptists, the peace churches. This group here, this church, is actually Anabaptist in its theology. But where the medieval prince had once been nominally subject to the church, Luther says, no, we completely separate the affairs of state. The bishops and the priests, they don't interfere with the prince. The bishops, they should stick to the sacraments and the princes should run the country and there's no overlap. You know, the religious authorities no longer tell the civil authorities what to do. And so Christians in the Reformed, Lutheran, the Anglican creeds, all of these creeds, all the three major Protestant groups, just war is part of the creed. This had never been true in the Roman Catholic Church. They had acknowledged just war. If you go ask your Catholic neighbors, they probably believe in just war. But the Pope never said, oh, just war is the thing, ex cathedra. It's only with Protestantism that just war becomes part of the creed. And Christians may now serve as soldiers, as businessmen. You can be a civil magistrate. And the way that you're successful, each sphere, it has its own integrity. The priesthood of all believers would come to mean that every profession, you know, it was like a holy office. The priest serves in the church and the businessman serves in the business. The way the priest, you know, shows his success is more souls saved, I guess. And the way the businessman shows he's blessed, more money coming in more money in the bank account. And of course, the way the soldier who served in a just war showed his success, if he fought with vigor, he's serving Christ as a sign of God's blessing. And so in the Augsburg Confession, Augsburg Confession is, this is Luther's. It's actually penned by Melanchthon, but it's on behalf of Luther. He says, Christians may without sin occupy civil offices or serve as princes and judges, render decisions and pass sentence according to the imperial and other existing laws, punish evildoers so that you'll have Christian executioners, engage in just wars, serve as soldiers, buy and sell, take required oaths, the oath sounds minor, but this was a major thing because taking a required oath, that was the way the whole society worked. It functioned in that way. And they put in this little thing. Luther condemns Christian church. He says, Condemned here are the Anabaptists who teach that none of the things indicated above is Christian. Luther declared us not Christian. This is true in the Augsburg Confession. It's true in the 39 Articles of the Church of England. It's true in the Westminster Confession. I won't read them all for you. But they all say the same thing. It, you can now be a soldier. You can kill for Christ. And so for the first time in these Protestant traditions, just war and participating in violence, it's not just permitted, it's a creedal statement. To be Lutheran, Anglican, or British Free Church, or Puritan, you know, the Presbyterian, the Reformed churches, means one is officially committed to just war and to state violence. 
Prior to the Reformation, the church, the popes and bishops, the sensibility that everybody had, you would curb war. You would allow for it, but war was evil. And the theory of just war had functioned as a kind of constraint, but now the only real arbiters of war are the princes. And of course with this we have the rise of nationalism, the nation-state, Capitalism are both a product of the Protestant Reformation in that the nation and the economy, like the church, they constitute their own realm of morality and internal accountability. The prince is not accountable to the priest. He's only accountable to himself. You remember the movie Gordon Gecko? He's a Wall Street trader. And he gets up and he says, Greed is good, you know, in the American way. Well, there's a sense if you just add a word in there, greed for God is good in this system because the accumulation of wealth, think of the health and wealth gospel, is a direct product of this same understanding. And so too much scrupulosity is a bad thing. Christians can do whatever they need to do according to the realm in which they serve, whether as a soldier, a magistrate, or a businessman. And so one's morality needs to be fit to the realm of service. Don't be picky, you know, about living morally. After all, we're all sinners. What really matters is the message of salvation by grace. I'm speaking facetiously. Sin is inevitable, and the message of the new religion is to live by grace. And to do so is to recognize one need not suffer guilt. You're not guilty. You don't need to feel bad about killing people. Realize you, you did it for a good reason. The whole idea of morality is not meant to exercise restraint. This is an unprotestant idea. Morality is for positive guidance to give us a good conscience. And so the Christian religion, which for 1,500 years had been nonviolent, it can now assuage any possibility of guilt as a result of the violence in war or guilt of war or killing in war. It's justified as service to Christ. And the stage is set for the 20th century. You know, this is why we had total war in the 20th century, I believe, as a byproduct of a new sensibility. It opens the possibility for the complete obliteration of civilian populations, no limits to destruction. And so Luther severed the tie between nonviolent peace and love, and on a broader scale, he severed the tie between Jesus as our model and the teaching of Jesus. Jesus gives us in this passage we just read, I'm giving you this new commandment of love, and it's new in part because he's the model. Luther presumed that all law is finished, and with law all human effort is set aside. We live by faith alone. And the failure of his effort to please God by obeying the law, he said, oh, that's the human problem. And Luther confronted in his own coming to a deeper understanding, you know, his problem with beating himself. He said, well, that's the meaning of grace. We don't worry about that anymore. 
And of course he thought the Lutheran problem with Catholicism was the Christian problem with Jews. He just read that as part of the Bible. He thought that was Paul's problem. And we tend to think that Luther's problem is Paul's problem. That's a misunderstanding. For Luther, law was a crushing judgment and a temptation to pride. But the problem is not with the law in the New Testament, but to imagine the law is itself the answer. Jesus gives us a new law of love, which he models and he enables us to fulfill. He is the model we are to follow. I think we lost in both Catholicism and the Protestant Reformation, I think we lost the key element of New Testament Christianity. Christ is our model that we are to follow. Very simple concept. Now, there are many ways to return to Jesus as model. One mode of that is to get rid of the notion that law is pitted against grace. If you're going to follow a model, well, you're going to follow rules. You're going to do what he said, and you're going to do what he did, right? They're part of the same thing. Jesus did not say that he came to set aside Jewish understanding. He said he came to purify Jewish understanding of the law and to save the law from misunderstandings, including the misunderstanding of violence. Jesus did not come to do away with the law. He came to fulfill it. He came to complete it. He came to tie it to himself as the mode. And so if we want to understand how the medieval church could remain largely pacifist, despite the exceptions of princes and soldiers, I think they had a sense of the law that we've lost. A partial answer is that the moral reasoning of ordinary people throughout Christian history was to understand legal application of the New Testament. They saw themselves following Jesus and following his rules. There's nothing wrong with that. The law does not save, that's true. The law does not contain life, that's true. But Jesus does not hesitate to give us the law of love with himself as the model. Now another entry point to gaining Christ or regaining Christ as model is to recognize that Lutheran and Calvinist notions of faith, you know, they pitted law against grace and that's a mistake and it's in the word pistis it's in the word faith we often think of faith in Christ as the primary thing we're doing in Christianity but actually the word pistis faith can also be translated faithfulness which changes everything what is it about Christ well it's his faithfulness and how do we then imitate or how do we take up the faith of Christ in and through the faithfulness that he modeled for us. In other words, the difference is faith in Christ as an object and the faithfulness of Christ as part of our own subjective being. And this is inclusive of an ethic. It's inclusive of the lifestyle. It's inclusive of the life of Christ. It brings the life in of Christ together with the teaching of Christ. And so Luther and Calvin will boil faith down to having faith in faith. Really. You know, you got to believe and you got to believe real hard because that's what saves you. And of course, the struggle among many Calvinists is I don't know if I, I'm saved. 
because I don't know if I have enough faith. No, you don't. You can never have enough faith in faith. So faith in faith does not save. In fact, I think it's torturous. The faithfulness of Christ saves us, and when we take up that faithfulness, it is a saving lifestyle of love. Now another entry point, and this is my conclusion, to regaining Christ as model is not to separate the life of Christ from the teaching of Christ. That's obvious. For mainstream Protestantism and even for mainstream Catholicism, the example of Christ was not as binding as his words. I don't know, maybe because just theology. You know, if you're a theologian, we think that that's pretty important stuff. Even more important than behavior, right? No, it's not. It developed the teachings of Christ as normative without the model or the teachings of the apostle more than the actions of the apostles. But, you know, the way of Jesus acted, the way the apostles acted, it needs to be integrated into the teaching. With Jesus as model, behavior and belief, theology and action, theory and practice are not separated. The law of the love of Christ is sufficient because life and belief are brought back together. So Christ brought the newness of the law of love in a clarified and reinforced way. He taught it. He also lived it. And we do not have Christ without the law of nonviolent, peaceful love. That's just the teaching and model he gives us. Jesus made clear that the law of love meaning the law of the love of the enemy, right? You don't kill your enemy. You love your enemy. And this is the heart of the salvation that God brings us. It may be that this understanding of Jesus as model, I think it was implicit. And maybe I'm saying something here that in the first church they just didn't need to hear because they all knew it. But I think after the Protestant Reformation, we need to say this in a way that makes Jesus central as model because we've lost the coherence between the teaching and the life. And so I think the Protestant Reformation allowed, in a sense it allowed for a return for the fullness of the gospel because what's going to happen with the Protestant Reformation is in fact at the same time the smaller reformations of the Anabaptists, the peace churches, the Mennonites, the Quakers, the, there's many, many groups of Anabaptists. The complete loss of peace and its full renewal strangely occur simultaneously with the Anabaptist part in the Reformation. The Restoration Movement, of which this church is a part, was always an Anabaptist movement, theologically. Not genetically, but theologically. You go through all of the Campbell, Stone, Franklin, Smith, you know, just go through all of the founding leaders of the Christian church, they were most all pacifists. This is not because this movement has genetic ties. I think it's just part of the, what the New Testament teaches. And when we can read the New Testament without either the blinders that were put there through the authoritative system of Catholicism or the blinders that were put there through the Protestant Reformation, I think the peace 
teaching of Jesus is just clear, and it just happens again and again, historically. Unfortunately, this group of churches in the United States has lost this focus because we've just become part of Protestant evangelicalism. But I believe in this moment in which the love of Jesus has been equated with a blasphemous insurrection of violence, I think it is a time to see clearly that much of Protestantism has lost Jesus as model, right? And he needs to be put back in place. This is my commandment that you love one another. How? Just as I loved you. As 1 John states it, we love because he first loved us. Love comes from God in Christ. Apart from Christ, we do not have the love of God. Only by restoring Christ's teaching and life can we be born of God and no love. I'm just paraphrasing a little bit, First John. Thank you for listening to this episode of Forging Plowshares. You can learn more and join our growing community by visiting forgingplowshares.org. Please consider supporting at patreon.com slash paulaxton or by donating at forgingplowshares.org slash donate.